morning. Hope you guys are doing well. It's always a pleasure to come out here and preach and hang out with you guys. Uh, I love doing guest preaching. It's kind of, it's, it's cheap really because I get to come and say all the good stuff and then leave Mark to deal with all your problems. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Well, sort of. Uh, so <laughs> I teach at the Stony Brook School. I'm in my fifth year there and we have plenty of problems to go around. So I've, I'm doing my fair share over there as well. I have three boys. My wife and I have three boys, a uh, four-year-old, an almost three-year-old, and an eight-month-old. My wife is out of town right now at a family funeral, so it's just been myself and the two older boys. In the last two nights, I have basically fallen asleep on the floor after putting them to bed. <laughs> uh, last night, the dog woke me up at 11.30 to remind me that he needed to go to the bathroom. So, But I'm glad I'm here. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting into the Word with you. So we're looking at James 1, and uh, while the whole passage is there, 1 through 18, I'm really locked in on 2 through 4. So I'm using 1 through 18 to speak about uh, 2 through 4 in particular. One of the things I've realized as I teach at a uh, religious high school is that there seem to be, there's a, there's a difficult question for religious students, and there is a difficult question for atheist students. And the difficult question for the religious student which is right and just, I think, is the problem of evil. And so religious students have to wrestle with, if there is a good God, why is there suffering? Why is there evil? And I think that's appropriate. And I think it should keep us up at night to think about that question. And the scriptures are are tough about it. Because you could say, well, Adam and Eve ate this fruit and we made that decision. But Adam and Eve are made and clearly there's already evil there. There's an evil presence that comes in the form of the snake to tempt Adam and Eve. I mean, there's evil before the fall. And the scriptures, uh, they don't always answer why super specifically, but they always give you how, resources for dealing with suffering, and the ultimate end, that it's all going to end well, that on the cross everything is redeemed and Jesus is going to make it right. But it's still a tough question, and I've watched a lot of students fall on that question. Not fall, like their faith falls by the wayside, but they've just had really tough times with that question. But the atheist question is an interesting one, too. My students who don't have any belief in God or any kind of religion, the difficult thing they have to wrestle with is that they have a very strong conscience that tells them that there's a moral good and there are moral bad things in the universe. And sometimes they even use their morality to say, you know, I couldn't believe in a God who allows this evil to happen. But the thing that the atheist student has to wrestle with is if it's all material, If we're all just atoms colliding into one another, then your sense that there is a right and wrong is totally arbitrary. It's not real. It's just preference. And maybe that's easy to say in the abstract, but I think when you see somebody suffering, when you see injustice, that feeling that dwells up within you feels a lot stronger than just what, you know, my preference to a certain Starbucks drink. It feels like it's like baked into who I am, that there is good and there is evil, and this is evil, and this is good, and good should be pursued. And one of the things that I watch my students wrestle with and where they really fall, the students who don't have any belief, where they really struggle is when they suffer. Because if it's all just material, if it's all just atoms, if it's all just whatever, then what is suffering about? It's just random bad luck. And nobody likes that. And so we struggle to create a narrative for it in really tragic situations when somebody loses a loved one, uh, randomly or suddenly, 
How often do people try to, they wrestle very hard to come up with some kind of meaning for that narrative? Even if they have to create it, you know? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work really hard to create a charity to make sure this doesn't happen again. Which is good, right? Serving others. But it could also be, I need to create meaning for this totally random thing that's happened. Well, the Christian story doesn't just leave us in suffering is random and meaningless and some people got the better end of the straw and some people didn't and it all just, sorry, it's unfair. The scriptures believe that there's a purpose behind suffering. And the book of James gives us a a glimpse into that suffering. It doesn't answer all our questions. It doesn't tell us this is the whole reason, but it draws back the curtain a little bit and says that when we suffer, there is something going on. There is some function happening with suffering. It's not meaningless. So I want to look at James. We're just going to read 2 through 4 right now. Then uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then let's get into it. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me pray real quick that God would bless this word. Father, we thank you for who you are. I ask that your word would be heard, not mine, that we would feel your presence here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the 40s, uh, so I'm, I'm a nonfiction guy. I'm, really, I'm an English teacher. I teach a lot of fiction, but I guess because I teach so much fiction, I read a lot of nonfiction all the time. Uh, Norman McLean, who wrote A River Runs Through It, if any of you have read that fantastic book, it'll make you a better person. You should read it. Okay. Uh, he also wrote a book called Young Men in Fire, and it's about, this opening story is about the Man Gulch Fire in the West, in Montana. And it's a pretty tragic event. Uh, back in the 40s, they started, in the West, they started this smoke jumper program. And the idea was, we can't get to the fires fast enough, the roads aren't good enough, and if a, if a random fire starts in Montana, by the time we're aware of it, it's already burning down our houses. So we need to train these young men to parachute out of these planes, to get there immediately, and to get to work. And the program had been highly successful for nine years, up to 1949, when the Man Gulch fire happens. And uh, this fire starts in Man Gulch. It's a canyon. It starts up on the southern side. And uh, James Harrison is this young man, calls in the fire, and goes by himself to fight this thing, and fights it, holds it off for like four hours. Well, the smoke jumpers, there are 16 of them, led by, uh, let me make sure I get his name right, Wagner Dodge, 16 of them, and Wagner Dodge is their leader. They get on this plane, and they fly into the dangerous area. One of the men gets sick and won't jump. The other 15 parachute out. So they parachute out, they gather together, they get their supplies, they kind of create a home base. Warner Dodge says, I'm going to go try to find the guy who called out the fire. You guys begin heading into the valley. We're going to get to work. And they get all their equipment on, they get their shovels, everything they need, and they start heading off to fight the fire. Warner Dodge goes, finds the young James Harrison, who's been fighting this fire for hours, says, team up with us, we're going to do this. But at this point, he starts to notice that there's something unique about this fire, that it is moving very quickly. And something that he could not have known at the time, this fire is about to go 3,000 acres in 10 minutes. It's just going to eviscerate the entire area. But he has a sense that something is very wrong, and he needs to catch up with his men immediately. And so him and James book it as fast as they can. They get to the men, and by the time he reaches his men, he realizes that the fire has now jumped 
to the other side of the canyon as well and that they're about to be totally cut off. And so he tells his men, guys, this is about as dangerous as it's ever going to get for us. You need to throw down your stuff and run and follow me. Now, an interesting thing happened right there is half the men didn't do it. They continued to go, but they clung to their equipment. So they begin going up this incredibly steep incline. I've seen pictures of it. It's like 75 degrees. I mean, you're just going on all fours. And they're going up as quickly as they can when Dodge turns around and realizes they've got a minute and they're not going to make it out. And so he very calmly, and it turns out he had never heard of anyone doing this before, he invented this on the spot. It's now called an escape fire. He very calmly took out a pack of matches, lit a fire, and made a fire in front of him. And his thought was, if I burn up the brush right in front of me, there will be nothing to burn once the fire gets here, and I can move into the burn area and I'll be safe. So he stops, takes out his matches, lights it, throws it down, tries to tell the men, stay with me, stay with me, and none of them trust him. They think he's insane. It's never going to work. And they just continue to hightail it up the canyon. Well, he yells and begs for them to stay with him. They won't do it. One of them curses him out and continues to run up. He, uh, in 40 seconds, the fire's almost on him. He's created a burn space. He takes a, a handkerchief, wets it, puts it over his face, lies down in the burn space. And as the fire goes by, he said that the heat was so intense, he literally felt his body lifting up like three times. And just like, whoosh. And after a minute of laying there, the fire was gone. It was past him. And he stood up. He was safe. He was alive. He began to look for his men and only would find two of them alive. The two who did survive managed to sneak into a crevice and find this uh, place where there were these only rocks, and they survived. Now, that story, uh, which revamped the entire process of fighting fires in the West and is constantly held up as something that is studied in schools, uh, what Warner Dodge did, what his men did in ignoring him, I find that story is a really interesting, uh, is an interesting case study almost in our experience as well. It's like we are, we are in this place, we think we have control of the various fires in our lives, uh, and for the most part, we trust our guide. For the most part, yeah, God is the one I, I'm with and I cling to, but when it gets really bad, when the chips are down, frequently it seems like our first desire is to, okay, I followed you when things were okay, but it's just my life now, I'm, I'm taking this into my own hands. Put down your stuff. You won't need that stuff. No, I got this stuff. This is the stuff that takes care of me. This is the material I need. Trust me. Lay down here. I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to lean into it. You can't escape this suffering. We're going to have to endure it together. And our temptation, I think, is to say, I'm with God so long as things are going well, but when it hits it, I'm, I'm out. And I imagine if those men had trusted Dodge at that moment, right? If they had said, this guy's 10, 20 years older than me, He's been really faithful and trustworthy, and I'm just going to trust that he's right and lay down here and let the suffering go, but the fire go by. I can imagine the lessons they would have learned as they left, they probably never would have disobeyed an order of his, right? They would have learned that he was incredibly trustworthy, that he was smart, that he had their best interests at heart. There were a lot of lessons on the table for them to learn. Well, we're a lot like those uh, 15 men who ignored Warner Dodge. And because we often don't trust God as our guide, we frequently avoid the path that would save us. And so this passage here is telling us, basically, it looks weird. 
He's taken out a pack of matches while the whole fire thing is lighting up on fire and everything looks out of control. And your temptation is to grab your stuff and say, every man for himself. But we have a good guide who is on our side, who takes care of us, who is for his people. And let's trust him. So I want to look at three points. I want to look at point one. We can rejoice in suffering because it strengthens our faith. We rejoice in suffering because God grants us wisdom. And we rejoice in suffering because it leads us to God. So let's jump in. So we start off James 1, 2. And James says it right away. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And if you can hear that and, and not feel a little like, oh, come on, then you've maybe heard that verse too often, right? Um, honestly, I'm a little intimidated preaching it. I mean, I, so I'm 29, I have three kids, I've had my fair share of difficulty, but I know that in this room there are people who have suffered things that I, I can't even imagine. And James is saying to you and to me, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So I'm like, well, maybe there's some way around it. You know, maybe, uh, maybe the trials he means just persecution. I can get on board with that. Maybe he just means if we're persecuted in the way Jesus is persecuted, that's the one we count as, as all joy. But of course he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, right? A whole range of, of suffering. Like, okay, well, maybe, maybe you only mean like disease or, I don't know. And then he says this, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So his answer on, what are these trials? These are trials that test your faith. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the things you go through that make you go, is this real? Do I have a good guide? Am I doing the right thing? Has my life of attending church been worth it? Have I been pursuing this for any reason? He's like, those are the ones I'm talking about. I'm not hiding from the hard things. And in fact, if this is James, the brother of Jesus, he's, his own brother has died. He's seen him crucified, right? He knows what suffering is. He knows how radical it is for him to say this. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, well, so by joy, I mean, what do we mean? So we know we, we can look at Jesus. And when Lazarus died and Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus died, he did not go, woohoo! He wept, right? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried. When I see the scriptures, they tell me, weep with those who weep. I read psalms that seem to embrace that mourning is a way forward. So this joy can't mean that it's just like, you know what? I am getting destroyed, and it's great. Um, and maybe you've tried to do that or have been around a person who's tried to do that. It's really frustrating and annoying, right? Um, feels very false. So it can't be that. There must be something deeper going on this joy, right? And to explain this joy, why, count it all, count it all joy. Why we can do that is James says, I want you to know that the testing of your faith, testing as in we're hammering it out, we are improving it, we are, we are making it better, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So why can I rejoice my suffering because at least one element of suffering is that suffering is always always a place where we seem to fall on our knees before God for there is an opportunity to learn that he's trustworthy 
to follow him as he's lighting the matches and burning the escape fire and laying down. And it looks like he's not doing anything. That suffering is a place where we can learn how good God is and how much he takes care of us. I want to read the, the message, actually translate it this way, and it's, it's a really good translation, I think. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. I just recently spoke to a good friend of mine who was speaking with his parents and uh, his parents are not Christians, and he is, and he's made some decisions with his family that are tough to explain outside of the fact that there is a God in the universe and that our priorities are different. And he told me he had a recent conversation with his parents where his parents said, you realize the path you're on could lead to a lot of suffering. And he was like, you know, as a Christian, I'm not actually, that's not my biggest fear, Right? My biggest fear is missing God. And it's a totally different priority. The goal is not, I'm going to escape this suffering. It's, I'm going to sit through it. I'm going to lean into it. Because it's the place where God is going to meet me. I'm going to meet it head on because I have a Savior who loves me, who's going to pull me through it, who's going to deliver me to the crown of life. And you still might say, you still might say, if you're feeling cynical about this passage this morning, you still might say, okay, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, so suffering is just a self-improvement project. Is that what suffering's about? I'm just learning a lesson? And you might be tempted to be like, all right, I've learned this lesson. Can we quit this suffering, right? Um, I, I think I've improved. Can we move on? Can you make someone else suffer? And I look at uh, my brother... Um, at the age of 21, my brother had a stroke that uh, has permanently handicapped him on his left side of his body. And I can see reading this and saying, really? Was it worth it? Whatever you've decided to put my brother through, was that worth it? This suffering so that he could be drawn closer to you? And I think what that betrays, that that's my thought occasionally. I think it betrays the fact that I still don't value God as highly as I need to, that I still don't understand that the most important thing in life is getting Jesus, period. And that when we become Christians, what God says in effect to us is we're going all the way. The most important thing is your growth as someone who depends on the Father, as someone who grows morally and closer to me, and that's the most important thing. Everything else pales in comparison. Lewis puts it this way. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. What James means is that compared to the glory of God, it's all gravy. It's all good. 
that compared to our ultimate destination before a Father who loves us. It's all joy. And that every moment we have where we're drawn closer to Him is worth it. Now, you know what's not going to work here is this kind of um, Protestant escapism, I guess. This idea like, all right, I became a Christian, now I'm just going to hang in there until I die, and then poof, everything's perfect. The Scriptures never... That idea is not in the Scriptures anywhere. The Scriptures are, if, if we are in Christ, that becomes our priority too. That's what we're pursuing. We're not just hanging in there while everything's going to hell, hoping that, like, poof, we go to heaven when it's all done. We get to work. We let faith produce steadfastness and have its full effect. Uh, George McDonald gave this example. Uh, he said, it's a little like a master builder comes to a house. And... He's, he's wandered through, and, and he's, you're the house. Okay, sorry. You're the house. A master builder comes to the house. He's wandered through the rooms, and he starts off by cleaning up all the things that you're like, yeah, that's what I would clean up. He knocks out the pipes. He fixes some of the plumbing here. He paints over there, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that needed to be fixed. My temper tantrums were bad. I'm glad we did that, and this and that. Well, and then he brings out the wrecking ball and just starts smashing your garage and putting your walls through, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. I, we just needed to make me a little nicer. This is too much, you know. And what you begin to realize is that master builder is not just renovating a house. He's turning it into a palace for the king to live in. And that's us. We come to God and we tend to think that, uh, well, we're mostly there. And we need to be wrecked and created into a palace for the king to dwell in. So this joy is a deep-down joy. It cannot be touched by suffering. It's a knowledge that even in the most awful situation, maybe even especially in the awful situation, God is making you more like himself. And so James's charge is don't keep running up the canyon. Sit down. Lean into it. This is where God wants to meet you. Let it take its full effect. All right. So we might look at that, though, and go, okay, I get it. That is really hard. <laughs> Truth. Uh, and I, I can't see life that way. I tend to look out at the world and I, no matter how much I fight, I value the wrong things and it's hard for me to look at suffering and my initial impact to be, this is a place where God can meet me, count it all joy. Well, uh, this year, one thing I've tried with my students is I'm always trying to get my students kind of outside of themselves in social media land. Um, not that social media is necessarily bad, but it seems to promote a certain narcissism. And so I'm always trying to push students towards external engagement. And one thing I've learned is that students cannot resist puzzles. Puzzles are awesome. I love puzzles, too. Uh, and so I just started doing a Rubik's Cube at the beginning of the year. And in between class, I'd just be working on a Rubik's Cube. And it's amazing. Like, kids would just appear. And be like, I could do that. Here, give it to me. Boom. Thanks. Uh, it's amazing how many kids know how to do a Rubik's Cube. I clearly missed some class that you're supposed to take. Uh, I think I literally had one class where half the class could do a Rubik's Cube. Um, okay, so I got to the point, uh, I, I, I worked on it for about a month and a half, and I got to the point I could do it in two minutes. It was about my top time, which is pretty impressive, except uh, my students can, one of my students can do it in 30 seconds. Um, Anyway, as I was doing the Rubik's Cube, <laughs> I almost brought one with me, but I was afraid you'd ask me to do it. Uh, 
As I was doing the Rubik's Cube, I noticed something after like week one of doing the Rubik's Cube, uh, when I should have been doing the dishes, is that I noticed that my brain started seeing patterns. It's a really cool thing. Like you can almost, it almost feels physical. Like your brain has unlocked. You start seeing patterns that you never saw before. And you're like, whoa. Uh, and your hands start moving kind of ahead of your brain. Uh, it's almost like a second vision where before I looked at it and I was like, ah. Now I just start all immediately start to see all the different things. And I think it's every skill has that level, you know what I'm talking about, where you start to see things differently. My dad's a Spanish teacher, uh, and he's learned like six different languages. It's his hobby to learn new languages. That's pretty cool. Uh, and his goal is always to have a dream in the language he's trying to learn. Because he feels like if I fall asleep and I dream in German, then I must have mastered German because I'm now dreaming in it, right? It's this second level. And with the Rubik's Cube, what's funny is, okay, my student who can do it in 30 seconds, pretty incredible. I can do it in two minutes. And even though I've spent this time with the Rubik's Cube, if I have a conversation with my student, like, tell me how you do it in the 30 seconds, he might as well be speaking Japanese. I have no idea what he's talking about. Even as far as I've gone, I'm like, he begins explaining it, and I'm like, whoa, you were on another level. And it almost feels like that's what God is like calling us to, is like, you need to start seeing thing, this second vision. You need to start seeing it on kind of another level. And well, that's really difficult, but James immediately says, if any of you lacks wisdom, this is in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is what he's talking about. I can't see the world that way. Ask God. And I think this is part of what the spiritual disciplines are about. If you think about the Old Testament, what is the Old Testament about? What is happening over and over? Frequently, the Israelites come up. There's a sea. There's a giant army behind them. Physically, looking around at the world, they're done. And God says, you're not seeing with my eyes and spreads the water. Right? How can I have a child? I'm barren. You're not looking through my eyes. How can we overcome this large army? It's like every single story in the Old Testament is physically everything looks totally hopeless. And God says, I see a moral landscape. I see the righteous. I see the wicked. I see my angelic forces at work. You need to see the way I see too. You need to see those things. We pray so frequently for things on top of what's important. Know what I mean? Like, my prayers are so frequently about things that I'm praying about, you know, money or physical health or those kinds of things. And you can almost feel what God is saying is, I don't want you to pray, God, give me more financial security. I want you to pray, God, help me to trust you in my current financial situation. Help me to give. I don't want you to pray, God, uh, you know, make me totally healthy. I want you to pray, God, teach me how to not be perfectly healthy. Teach me how to trust you. It's not saying those physical things are unimportant. They're super important. God made our bodies. He made the physical world. It's great stuff. But there's this bigger priority that overshadows everything, is this moral landscape. And, you know, this is even the reason, partially, why Jesus is killed, right? Jesus shows up, the solution for the world's problems, and he says the biggest problem is not environmental or economic or political or any of the ex external things. He says the problem is your heart. That's the root of the problem. It's your heart. I've come for you. We didn't really want to hear that. 
The world looks at a person who, say, struggles with MS or a degenerative disease or something like that and says, they've missed the boat. Life is about having beautiful things and being healthy and happy, and there's not really anything left for them to do. I don't want to think about that story that's really distressing. But God looks at the moral landscape and says, like, that person has so much value and there's so much good things going on with them and their life is not even over. They're in the middle of the greatest battle. It values everyone because we are all in the same place. Now notice this, though. He says this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And the question is like, do you really want this? If you're going to go for this, if you want to go for God, don't like, all right, I'm going to pursue you, but also I'm going to hang on to this thing uh, just in case it doesn't work out. I'm going to keep that pack and the tools. I hear you asked me to drop it, but I'm going to keep it on just in case. There's no, you got to go all in, is what James is saying. You have to go all in. The pack on your back that we're using to escape the fire is not going to save us. It's not going to do it. Only Jesus will. When God asks us to take it off, we have to take it off. Uh, parenting is a lot like this, I think. So my, my eldest son is very concerned with breaking the rules because he doesn't want to get in trouble. My youngest son, less concerned with that. Uh, and occasionally I'll hear them what Murray, my eldest, has learned is that if he can somehow keep George from coming to us after he's wronged George, then maybe he can avoid the crisis, you know? So if, if you hit George and George starts crying, but he can talk him down before George gets to mom and dad, then maybe I'll escape um, the timeout or whatever. And so my wife and I overheard recently, I, we don't know what happens, there's some thud, and we hear George start screaming and crying, and Murray goes, George, are you okay? Are you okay? Hey, George, are you okay? George, are you? And finally, George turns to him and he's like, Murray, stop it. I am not okay. <laughs> Which was glorious. Uh, <laughs> what's funny is, though, we, we hear it, and when you hear little kids struggle with things, um, they think the most important thing at that very situation is like, I just hit George, or I'm going to get in trouble, or can't get my socks on or this food isn't the way I wanted it like that is right in their face but as parents you always see the bigger thing right you're always saying hey I the fact that you just hit George right then okay that's bad I wish you wouldn't do that but I also wish you cared about George and would ask him sincerely are you okay you know uh, I know that you're really stressed out about the food you got and that it wasn't what you wanted what I really want is I want to see you fight to be grateful for what you have. We always see like one level over what the kid, hopefully, <laughs> um, we always see one level over what the kid is concerned with. And I think that's with God too, right? Like this is the Jesus who calmed the storm. It's just like, hey, stop. Like I can calm this. What, I want, what I'm concerned about is you and your dependency on me. What I'm concerned about is that you get Jesus. That's the best thing I can offer for you. Is that you get me. So James tells us, count it all joy because it's all gravy compared to where we're heading because it all leads us to God. If you struggle with seeing this, ask God for wisdom. And he gives this example even. He's like, this is what it looks like in 9 through 
uh, 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. When you start seeing the way I'm seeing, you'll realize that all those things everybody is after all the time doesn't do it for you. It won't help you. It won't save you. A really funny, uh, well, no, not funny. An interesting side effect of walking with my brother through his stroke was it did actually turn off some of the things I valued before. Like, uh, used to think if I made a certain amount of money, I'd be happier. And it wouldn't have mattered how much brother money my brother was making. And that realization hitting me finally helped me click on some of that. I was like, man, yeah, that, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been security. It wouldn't have mattered. The best thing my brother can have is faith in his king. So we can rejoice in suffering because it produces steadfastness. We can rejoice in suffering because we can ask for wisdom. And finally, we get, we get to the end. He, he wraps it up here. We can rejoice in suffering because it leads to God. And we look in 12, we see the true stakes of the situation. In James 1.12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So here we are again, being steadfast. For when he has stood the test, and stood the test as in, he still claims Christ is his own. And some of you, brief aside, some of you may think, you know, like you've been through some serious suffering, and you may think, uh, Sinclair Ferguson said this, you may think, yeah, but I didn't do it tremendously. I wasn't, you know, awake reading my Bible all the time and doing all of that, but you're still here, right? Still cling to your king. And so I think some of us need to be encouraged, right? We've gone through incredible suffering, and you're like, I didn't do it the way that so-and-so would do it. Who cares? You've stood the test. You're with the king. He's with you. Which God has promised to those who love him. Now here it is. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted for, by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we see the true stakes. The issue of this temptation is to say, it's God, what's God's doing? Is he really good? That's at the root, right? I'm being tempted by God. Is another way of saying, God is not on my side. He's against me. God must be against me. And I think a lot of us in this room have probably been tempted to say that before. I don't know if he's for me. Maybe he's even against me. And what James is saying is that is never true. That is never true. And the cross is the ultimate canceling out of that thought, right? The the cross is the ultimate stance against that. We want to know if God is for us. We have a Savior who died, who suffered, to be with us, who for the joy laid before him endured the cross. We have a God who is always for us. And that's what's at stake here with these trials. Is we might be tempted to say, I don't think he's for us. James says that's never true. Do not be deceived, he says. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And those good and perfect gifts are the wisdom to perceive the true stakes in the world that he's drawing us closer to himself, even in suffering, that one day he will give us the crown of life. 
One hour with God will be worth a lifetime of suffering. And we get an eternity with Him. It's a true thing. I'll end with this story. I had a friend of mine named Barry. I love Barry very much, and we come from really different places. And uh, his family, um, wild and crazy stories in his family. And uh, he was the first one to go to college uh, from his family. And we had a lot of talks about our different approaches to life and all this, and I've loved being with him. He's one of my best friends. Well, he graduated college and didn't really know what to do next and didn't really like his degree, and so just got a job and wasn't very ambitious with his life. And um, Well, one day he's at church, and he falls like head over heels for this girl, Michelle, who is also awesome. And uh, he decides like he's going to pursue this girl, and he takes her out on a couple of dates, and they're both around 30 at this time. He takes her out on a couple of dates, and he's like, she's the one. I don't need to waste any more time. I'm going to propose. And he proposes, and she says, not yet. He's like, this is what I want to see from you before I say yes to this question. And she's like, I want to see that you can go hold a job that can support both of us. I want to see that you can do this. And she lays out like a list for him. This is what I want to see out of you. And at the day, the day that that happened, he was devastated. <laughs> but the next six months, he went to work. He took that list and he went into it. And you can imagine that, you know, some of it was hard, but he loves Michelle very much. And I imagine that when you asked him, is this worth it? He's like, not even a competition. It's 100% worth it. And he could rejoice in his suffering, right? Because he knows what's at the end of it is totally unified with Michelle. And they're married now and have a son and uh, very happy together. In a lot of ways, that's the Christian life as well, right? Um, not that God says no. <laughs> God says, yes, I fully accept you, and we've got work to do. Because I want to spend an eternity united with you. I want to spend an eternity united with your full self. I'm going to rip away the dross and the stuff that holds you back from being fully united to me. I'm going to do it, and it's going to hurt. But when it's done, we'll look back and say it was totally worth it. That's the radical promise of the gospel. I hope we believe that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you love us. That because of your work on the cross, you have secured the crown of life for us. And that in suffering, you call us closer to you, to depend on you. Father, I know that there are people in this room who have suffered in unbelievable ways. And it feels even, even like a mockery to potentially say, that a suffering could be something we rejoice in. But we know that you say that, and you say that where we're heading is going to be so glorious that everything we suffer here will pale in comparison. And we'll look back and say that it was totally worth it. Father, help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.